Looking at our text tonight is one that may be familiar to you, Luke chapter 16. And it's at uh, the second half of that chapter we'll be looking at where we're looking at the rich man and Lazarus and you've probably... I've called it tonight the reality of hell, incorporating points of the doctrine of eternal judgment. But I'll go there myself and I'll read that. We'll read that and then we'll pray and then we'll, um, we'll just get set up here. That'll work. All right. All right. Luke chapter 16, uh, starting at verse 19, and I'll just read, read through to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, rememberest thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things? But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, father, Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Let's pray to the Lord. Our loving Father God in heaven, we thank you for this evening, Lord. The way you have providenced in each of our lives to be able to be here tonight. We thank you for the freedom. Thank you for the health, Lord. And that reminds us as those who can't be with us uh, because of ill health or ailments, Lord, we pray you'll minister to their needs tonight, Lord. Comfort them spiritually, Lord, and that they can be encouraged physically, Lord, even in their sickness and trials, Lord. We do uh, pray for each one and um, as we've been praying through the prayer requests, Lord, for those that are not with us tonight. And Lord, we thank you and pray for the Victorian believers that come across each week and at this time they can't, Lord, and minister to them and their children, Lord, and, and uh, just in the fellowship we can have through the media, Lord, the streaming, Lord. And we pray that you'll bless that as the word goes forth. We pray with power through your spirit, Lord. And we just thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just pray that he will be preeminent in what we look at tonight and uh, that He will be you, your son will be glorified, Lord, as there is only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. And Father, we just thank you that we have salvation through him. We have eternal life. We have hope. 
We have the joy and the peace, Lord, that comforts our hearts tonight, Lord, as we are able to look clearly and orderly through your word and pray your spirit will guide me and bless me in these words uh, that it will be as your inspired word proclaimed originally, Lord. We can seek to dig into the deep truths and just see uh, what it is you're saying to us tonight, we pray. So we thank you for this ability, this opportunity and your power. May your name be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord God. Amen. All right. The reality of hell. And we've just read what is probably the most detailed description of the reality of hell in Scripture in, in, a, in a short piece here. And this story is not like uh, the other parables we read in the Gospels. And, and I just want to state a few obvious reasons why I, I sort of mention this and come to a conclusion. And the obvious reason is that um, in any other peep, uh, parable that Jesus ever told, uh, he never gave proper names of individuals. And we have nouns of names uh, in this story. We have Lazarus, which we read. We have Abraham and, and we have Moses. We've, and, uh, and secondly, neither of the two accounts, we didn't read the first one in the start of chapter 16, but in this whole chapter... Um, Neither of the two accounts of, in this chapter of Luke is called a parable by either by the Lord Jesus or Luke. And so just some things there. But, all right, let's concede for the sake of argument, because that can tie us up a lot these days, because there, there is a clear message here in that. But, but for the sake of argument that this is a parable, right, as a lot of people do call it that, and writers. And But what is a parable? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And a heavenly meaning is when the Lord Jesus shows us the spiritual truth illustrated by a similarity of a worldly thing, of an earthly thing. That So what is the truth that is represented in this written story which we have just read, this narrative? It is a clear description of two contrasts of our life here in the world, in death, and in the world to come. And we'll look through that. Not all of those points, but in some of them. Now, I'm going to say this only once tonight. I believe this is a true story. The rich man and Lazarus, the fact is, true every day, every 24-hour period, for 150,000 people nearly, Rich or poor, they either go to a heavenly bliss and joy or they go into a state of uncomprehensible torment into hell when they die. So who was it that told this story? Well, we know the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name meant, for he shall save his people from their sins. And here we have maybe the hottest sermon ever spoken from the lips of any man came from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, just as we consider these thoughts, what I'm going to do, I'm going to be quoting lots of scripture. We'll turn to some, but for example, Mark 9, 43 to 48, Jesus said, And if if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. 
It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And right throughout the Gospels, the Lord Jesus, and I read one writer and I actually haven't counted because I am aware that and the Lord Jesus spoke more of hell in warning about its um, judgment than he did of heaven. And because, again, he just does not want anyone to go there. And that was what he was warning him about. And so we see a lot of these passages throughout the Gospels and the New Testament writers too. So let's consider, uh, it was Jesus that told this story. So let's consider who was the story being spoken to. And let's go right back to verse 15 of this chapter. Let's read. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Okay, just remember that word abomination in the sight of God. Now, well, all right, Jesus is talking to people who justified themselves before men. Who were they? We see that in verse 14. They were religious people, the Pharisees. And, you know, most of the hot sermons that Jesus preached were to the religious people who were just not getting it, who were deriding him in their hearts as they are right now, scoffing at him. Uh, and, uh, and so he is just setting it straight, making it clear. Because what you realise, a pattern we see when he spoke to the down and outers he didn't speak on hell like the woman at the well. He spoke on his great love for her and her need of a saviour, a messiah, and uh, that he was the one. And when, like, um, and to, you know, those sort of people, it was on love. And so, and so um, here we have, let's go to verse 23. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Now, this is... The Greek word here is Hades, all right, we have here for hell in the New Testament. And when a person dies today, depending on whether they are saved or unsaved, they are buried and their spirit immediately goes into the presence of God forever or out of the presence of God forever, whether you're saved or unsaved, according to Scripture. Now, uh, let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. All right. We're just going to look at a few things here as we make a contrast also of the judgment of eternal judgment with Hades and the great white throne. But let's look here, um, which is the lake of fire. So Revelations 20, let's read 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Okay, what we see, Hades is temporary, the, what we're reading in Luke 16. And verse 14, let me read, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so we see that it will be cast into the lake of fire. So we see a lot of people have drowned at sea, and that's where verse 13 starts. And their bodies, that were those that were wicked, because we know the righteous have been resurrected already. We'll look at that in a minute. And like a t Hades is like a temporary jail 
you could picture. It is where the wicked go when they die and await the final resurrection and judgment at the great white throne, judgment. And you could, I read that you could picture the lake of fire as the prison that you're going to spend forever. So when I say final resurrection, as we read here, it is the reuniting of the bodies of the wicked dead we're seeing so that they can, as we see at the start of verse 12, stand before God. Okay? And that was the bodies that were raised um, in verse 13 from the sea, from you know the deeps of the earth, the dead and and death and hell were delivered up into them. And so to face the judgment of the second death. And so Hades and the lake of fire are not the same, but now they, they get crossed over when people are talking about eternal, like hell, basically that's the main word we use. But we see the contrast there. But they, now they seem alike in many ways, though, but they are not the same according to Scripture, as we've seen that. So right now, right now people who die, live and die, in unbelief and rejection of God of all the ages, even up until now, even from the Old Testament, they're in Hades and waiting the final judgment. Actually, yes, we'll, we'll make that because um, I'm going to talk about that place, the other half, where it is now too in a minute. So waiting for the final judgment of the great white throne where they will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and now let's look at Revelation 20. Let's look at verse 5 just back a little bit. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now let's just flip that last sentence and make that first because when does the great white throne take place according to Scripture? Now let's think. Chronologically, we'll look at this. As believers in Christ, we are waiting the rapture of the church in God's program uh, next and uh, of things to come. And then the seven-year tribulation, the millennium where Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years upon the earth, and then we have, according to God's program, the great white throne judgment. There are other things that happen in there, like the judgment seat of Christ and that, but just broadly, just getting to the great white throne judgment um, for the great white throne. So verse 5 What John is saying is the first resurrection was completed before the millennium, before the thousand-year reign of Christ. So, And that's when he's stating at the end of verse 5, this is the first resurrection. And it's... Do you know when it started? It started with Christ, the first fruits. After, you know, at his resurrection, Christ, the first fruits. And all, you know... And then all the saints who have belonged to Christ, the redeemed, both of the Old Testament period, the New Testament church period, and the tribulation period, will all eventually be bodily resurrected to reign with Christ in the millennium. And so it is um, the first resurrection is complete. And then this is the first resurrection at the end of five. And then the start of five, I'll read it again, but the rest of the dead, the wicked dead, Live not again until the thousand years were over, until after the millennium. This is where they come before the great white throne judgment. That's the way I see it. And I want to just add something. Just I'm going to come back and talk about this a bit more, just to as we get it into a bit of perspective, because um, 
Scripture proves that there is no general resurrection, all right, by, the, by this, as we compare the Scripture, in which the saved and the unsaved are raised together. It's not scriptural. It's, and then, you know, they're separated to their final destiny. This is actually false teaching because what does the word of God say? Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, which is before the millennium. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And we know a great majority of the that reuniting will be at the rapture for Christians, the New Testament, but um, that's what we're, we're looking forward to and then there'll be a remnant in the tribulation that, and then there'll be the, the first resurrection will be complete. And so... Um, but we rejoice and will come with God and reign with him in, in the millennium. So that's exciting. So this, but that general resurrection is false. And um, you say, why, okay, in this revelation, why are they standing there in verse 12? Well, in, in Hades, the suffering seems to be distinguished. Hades, the suffering, there is great torment because it's talk, that torment in what we read in Luke 16 is Condition of unspeakable misery, right? It's it's the start of your eternal judgment, and because um, God is not there, and uh, and so it's distinguished by the physical and mental torments we read in the text that we did, and we will we're going to look more closely at that when we get to the message. We're just introducing this now. We'll get to the first point. However, they are standing there. The, the wicked dead now that are all resurrected are standing there to receive their degree of punishment. In the lake of fire. So, let read some scripture that talk about this principle of of this degree of punishment of in in the judgment of condemnation more clearly. So, Psalms sixty two twelve. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. Jeremiah seventeen ten. I, the Lord, search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And as we go, we'll go to the New Testament. And uh, the Lord Jesus and the Apostle spoke um, about this degree of judgment of the unrepentant in, in, in great warning them. And so let's go to Matthew. And uh, I know um, Pastor McConnell made reference when I was telling him I was sharing on, on this on Wednesday and it, it was very good to be able to add this to the... We go to Matthew, chapter 11. I'm turning there. Verse 20 to 24. And I'm going to read that. Then began, this is the Lord Jesus, to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were not done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which they had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Okay, as we consider that, let's look at that word mighty works in verse 21 of Matthew 11. This we see is the miracles, the great signs and wonders that the Lord Jesus and even the apostles are 
and his disciples um, showed the overwhelming evidence of God's presence among them through these mighty works, and they rejected him, the Lord Jesus. 23, exalted unto heaven. Now consider this. Capernaum had the privilege of the Lord Jesus Christ living in their own town because he was rejected and kicked out of Nazareth, and then he lived in Capernaum. And, um, and so they were privileged to have him literally exalt heaven's glory, the Lord Jesus living with them, and they rejected him. 24, more tolerable in the day of judgment in verse 24 indicates there will be degrees of punishment. Um, and Romans 2.5 says, But after thy hardness and impotent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Every day the ungodly, as they reject God, as they reject Christ and indulge in their sin, they are literally piling up a bigger pile of greater degree of punishment upon themselves that they're going to have to give an account for. So God is merciful when the wicked die young in one sense. There is mercy even in that because they are their degree of punishment will be less. And uh, But the Lord lets them live because he is, as we read, merciful um, in wanting them to repent to believe and receive the truth and, 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 and be forgiven of and cleansed of all that wickedness that the Lord dealt with on the cross. So what we need to consider, the scripture talks of every idle word, every blasphemy, every lie, every adulterous look. Because in Revelations 20, we read there, the books were opened. And these books are going to contain these wicked works. Every one proclaiming the evil works of the dead that stand before the throne. And look, that is the privileges rejected of hearing the truth, whether it, it be through uh, some means of having the gospel or family, the Christian family maybe, or whatever means, or hearing the gospel through, and I'll look at that. See, the sins indulged in will justify why their names are not written, why they're not in the book of life, okay? And uh, they're not, and why they're being cast into the lake of fire, condemned forever. So this is the second death. And um, Luke 12, 47 to 48. And that servant which knew not his Lord's, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall but much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. And so the Lord Jesus said, and we see a biblical principle here, and I want to share a quote. Greater privilege only brought greater responsibilities and greater judgment. And so, Lord willing, right now, um, I, I, I plan to point out four points which are on the outline uh, that this word Hades, which is translated into hell, uh, means, uh, especially to the rich man, what he's uh, dealing with there. But just, we'll go back to the text there. Okay, 
Just to clarify before we should look at the first point a little bit more, from our Lord's description here in the text, um, this was described, this, this account is given before his actual death and resurrection on the cross. So this is where I want to explain a bit about Hades, um, the two parts. And we know it had two sections, a paradise portion called Abraham's bosom. And you probably remember back to the thief on the cross where the one that did repent and and uh, you know, the Lord said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So he got to spend, I think, you know, a little bit of time there before that part of Hades, the paradise part and part was cleaned out. And we're gonna look at some verses to just to clarify that and a punishment portion separated you know by a great gulf fix so there's two portions abraham's bosom and a punishment portion separated by a great gulf fix what we know now through the completed canon of scripture see we are more accountable to whom much has been given much more is going to be required even of that of john the baptist the last prophet as we you know know we, we have got so much more accountability. with, And so the Lord Jesus emptied the para, paradise portion of Hades after his resurrection from the grave. And let's look at, firstly, Apostle Paul speaks in Ephesians. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 9 to 10. He says, now that he ascended, what is it? Chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. This will become more clear as we read these other verses. Let's read John 20. The Lord Jesus is speaking to Mary Magdalene. She was waiting, well, looking to see him, um, his body, you know, after his death. And she was in the garden there. And Jesus saith unto her, she thought he was the gardener. But anyway, in that context, in verse 17 of John chapter 20, Jesus saith unto her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my father and your father and to my God and your God. My, that is, we're seeing the, the saints in paradise, in Abraham's bosom after his resurrection. He's got to go there and say, look, you're coming back with me to the Father in heaven. And Matthew 27, 52, 53. Matthew 27, 52, 53. Do you know, after Jesus died in this account, Matthew 27, the graves were open because there was a great earthquake after he died and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. All right, but when did they arise? The next verse, 53. And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and we know appeared unto many. Many, not all of them, wouldn't have accommodated Jerusalem. Would have. Some were able to go and then we, we understand that like they're in heaven now because the apostle Paul says paradise is now in the presence of God. Let's go to Second Corinthians. Chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. And when Jesus ascended, they all ascended with him. Like, it, that's how, you know, some would have went maybe before because there was only some in Jerusalem, not all of them. 12, verses 1 to 4. 
It is not, and I love Paul's humility here, it is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth, such as one caught up to the third heaven, where God is. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So we see that paradise, Hades has been emptied, the, uh, the righteous part, as we read of Lazarus in Abraham's bosom and all those that have gone there, um, up until the resurrection of Christ. And um, so they're in heaven now with all our loved ones that are in heaven, but they have their bodies um, but we know there'll be a resurrection body of the church saints at the rapture, or well, a great reunion that'll be. We look forward to that. So I won't go too much into that, but um, so this leads us, in looking at the contrast of the two lives of the rich man and Lazarus, firstly, the rich man, okay, we're looking at the contrast now. I've just sort of dealt with where we're at right now with um, Hades, but... We're just understanding that the, the wicked like, are still going to that other half right today. It hasn't finished yet or been cleaned out. As, so, right, we see purple in verse 19. He's wearing purple. And, you know, this expresses the robes worn by a person of rank and wealth. Like, it literally expresses royalty, purple robe. So, quite wealthy. The f- the fine linen, very expensive, all right? The extreme in clothing alone is equivalent, literally, it's pointing to someone of a millionaire value, all right? Just with the sumptuous living, which he fed sumptuously, not just for himself, because fed means luxurious, sumptuously, for show, for brightness, like for, to impress other people, to justify himself before other people. Um, he could afford the high end of social life with others of his rank. And all this we need to realise that he is not described, as we might start to think, as being guilty of any glaring sin, any great immoralities. It doesn't mention that in the context. It, it doesn't say he was a drunkard or a blasphemer or even an oppressor of the a poor. Some have uh, commentators or even a movie that was brought out expresses him as being those things, but he, it, the context doesn't say that. It was wrong. Okay, you might say that the poor man laid his gate full of sores day after day and all he gave him were the crumbs from his table to eat. So let's think about it. Where, um, what do we find in the context here? Now, let's look at the word gate. What it expresses, it's quite a grand, beautiful entrance and we're talking about a large, and I can only imagine, columns of marble. So it's large, it's beautiful, all right? That's what it's expressing here. Beggar is totally the contrast. It means extreme poverty, all right? The absolute most hopeless, most um, worst level of poverty. And so the word sores, large, ulcerated, painful, open, infected, excuse me, pus-filled sores. So just, he he's not in a good way, but he, he will be. <laughs> just, look, just a little side note here I put. There is, what struck me, encouraged me, this man who knew the Lord, he was very content in the Lord because his actual name means God is my help. Lazarus means God is my help. There's a quote. Significance of his name suggests 
that he was meant to symbolise the outward wretchedness of one who had no other help but God. And what we don't see is we don't see him murmuring or complaining about his very terrible, painful situation here on earth. And I was just being, that helped me actually to in contentment, learning that a bit deeper. <laughs> so let's consider why and how Lazarus, how why and how he can lie here at this rich man's gate. Who else in town, maybe he would say, who else in town can we consider would let me mess up their landscaping? He had to be put there by other... He, he was totally dependent. Someone had to put him there. And, and who would let me lie at their beautiful front entrance gate with these kind of sores? I know one man that will. Hey, just in this thought. There is nobody in town that will give me something to eat, but I know one man that will. So what, what, what I think the context seems to tell us is that it's more to the commendation and not to the condemnation of this rich man. So where are we getting? So, all right, it was also like the unjust steward in verse 8 of chapter 16. He was commended, even though it was not right what he did, he was commended even by his boss, his Lord, for the way he dealt with finishing up um, at this employment because he was unjust, he wasn't good. But the way he prepared for his future... The Lord Jesus even commended it. Um, I don't want to get off track here. Just why can't, if the world can do this, why can't my children prepare for their future? And as we get into this, and let's remember, we're talking about a man, the rich man, who justified himself before men, okay? People say today that you have not heard it. If he was such a good man, if he was a moral man, as we see, maybe, it doesn't say he was immoral, why did he die and go to hell? Now, the only reason anybody dies and goes to hell is simply he rejected God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only way to enter heaven, only through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we consider some of these verses, I want to think of John three eighteen: He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So to those of you who have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, you're not going to be condemned when you go to hell. You're condemned already as you sit in your seat or you know, as you hear the message of the gospel. John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, now look, present tense, abideth on him right now to those who don't believe and abides on them. Jonathan Edwards, I've got his sermon. I read it and uh, it's got in there a portion, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He said this, quote, God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell one moment. We could say it today like God is under no obligation to keep any sinner out of hell one second. And when you think of that, that is very sobering. God literally holds the last breath of our life, of your life, in his hands. He can snuff it out at any time as he sees fit. He is the author of life and finisher of life. And we know there is an appointment with that, but what we need to realise today, more so than ever, there is a universal push today that takes the form of false teaching that, quote, all will be saved without any kind of punishment. 
and it's becoming more prevalent. This softening of God's literal judgment has been so pushed that even National Geographic on the 13th of May 2016 ran an article, The Campaign to Eliminate Hell. Quote, they wrote, Over the last 20 years, this is from 2016, the number of Americans who believed in the fiery down under has dropped from 71% to 58%. Some Christians, and that's used very loosely, are finding it difficult to reconcile the existence of a just, loving God with a doctrine that dooms billions of people to eternal punishment. End of quote. Now, should this surprise us in these days? No. With the rapid decline we are witnessing of late in this world. Now, from a good author, there is a quote, If we don't accept the reality of hell, we won't understand the glory of the gospel, God's holiness and our depravity. End of quote. Now, here's a sad thing as we come back to the text and think about this in today's context as well. Um, That if we would desire to know uh, the passion and love of God uh, more because... To see this as a sad thing, here is, as the world would say, a moral, an upright, a good man in hell tonight with the vilest offenders of all the ages. And so we have talked about already the extreme contrast of two lives briefly. And just to conclude that, the rich man did not go to hell because he was rich. All right, Lazarus did not go to Abraham's bosom because he was poor. Multitudes of rich people are in heaven. Abraham was rich. There are multitudes of poor people in hell. So this does not compel us to... Well, does does this not compel us to desire to know more of the great compassionate heart of God as believers on the lost? Being compelled by those multitudes, even now of those damned souls below that are screaming out in their torments. The word of God gives us... These categories who are filling up hell at a rapid rate each day. Can we just quickly go to Revelation 21.8? As we look, I heard someone say this is the phone book of hell. But I'll just call it categories. Verse 8 of Revelation 21. But the fearful, the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and all idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death okay what is the fearful that's the young person who lives under the domination of the peer group afraid to get saved afraid he's going to get laughed at by the peer group that's the 5 p.m beer o'clock man who's afraid to get saved he's afraid what his work colleagues or buddies will say, here comes Mr. Religion, here comes Mr. Bible Basher. The most prevalent reason why a person dies and go to hell is P-R-I-D-E, pride. And I tell you, maybe, you know, there are some here tonight and watching on the stream who know in their heart that they have never truly confessed faith in Christ for this reason. What will people think of me? My pastor thinks I'm saved. My youth group leader thinks I'm saved. What will they think of me? All right, let's look at the next one. The unbeliever. That's the person who even comes to Lavington Baptist Church and he dies without Christ. Or they, The person who lives 
you know, by the golden rule, the Ten Commandments, as it were. But they die without Jesus Christ. The Sunday school teacher, the Bible class student who dies without Jesus Christ. Okay, we sung about, well, I read about this before, abomination. Next, the abominable. Now, we are witnessing some of the most abominable laws right now being passed in this last generation. Just wicked and just, they're getting worse. And the legalisation of sodomy and sodomite marriages, the abomination and just what's happening to children because of that and in those situations. And um, the, and, and just even hearing today, just wanting to change words because of, of these things and abominations. You know, like, just... Um, for, with like breastfeeding and they want to change it to chest feeding so they don't offend you know this wicked legislation and the people that represent them and 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 um, just and they, and there's worse things than that just taking away um, mother and, and father and all this and and just changing it with person and 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 it's it's the and all those involved in these, and then the wicked, and what this creates, and the and the and the, and the crimes against children, and through social media, you know, the predators, and and just the the vulnerable, the wicked crimes done by individuals that we only heard occasionally might have happened overseas in the bigger populated areas of wickedness. And now it's very close to home. See. Consider, would you move into a community knowing that George Pell was your next-door neighbour or any of those, you know, are like that, abominable practices, people? And, you know, but what we need to realise here next door is the moral unbeliever. Right next door, there might be the Kim Jong-un. And as we read murderers, we know he's a murderer and an idolater with his nation, making them worship him and his family. And so they are in that category as well and anyone who does anything to replace God is an idolater anything that takes you away from God is idolatry we know and but what about the Saddam Hussein or the or the or the George Pell likes you you know down there there we're just the abominable you you go down the block a bit and there's the sorcerer there's we have the uh whoremongers and sorcerers and that's you know where we get our English word pharmacy which is pharmacia, drugs. And so what we're seeing down the block is a person screaming for a shot of heroin. Down a bit next to him is a man on a bad acid trip. And right in the midst of these is that good person again, that moral unbeliever. So what, what, what we're pointing to is, look, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He doesn't want you to go to hell and uh, you don't want to go there either. And um, it... And so he's warned us so much and described those that go there. And uh, see, hell is a place for sinners. And hell is a place of suffering, number two. 23, back in our text, to 28. And at the end, we read that, but you'll see the word torment in each of those verses, 23 to 28. There is, he's crying out, have mercy on me because of the torment. And um, in this flame in verse 24 and tormented in 25 and um, and then again down in 28. And this word speaks of definite pain or continuous torture. Now, people today are refusing to believe this. this see, the Seventh-day Adventists preach that one day hell is going to burn up and cease to be. 
like there will be some kind of restoration after a period of punishment. And that's what people want to believe. There's a short, you know, period of imprisonment and then parole and then you're out. Like, or some people teach hell is total annihilation so that you actually, they're justifying you won't feel anything or experience anything because there's nothing. Jesus did not say that. Do you know we can prove the eternality of hell solely on the basis of the word eternal and the word eternity and everlasting? Because those words, for example, like eternal God in 1 Timothy 1.17, I'm going to read this out quickly. Now unto him, 1 Timothy 1.17, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. So God is eternal. And that word is also the same Greek word for eternal life in John 3.15, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. And then we have 16 that says it again. And then eternal judgment has the same Greek word for eternal in Hebrews 6.2, of the doctrine of baptism and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And that describes no ending, this word eternal. And if one is temporary, if God is... T- if, if judgment, what people are trying to say, is not eternal, then God is not eternal. And what they're doing is calling God a liar. So if one is not is temporary, the others have to be also. So you can't with the same word. So hell, people who say hell is not forever are literally calling God a liar. And God cannot lie. We know that. And... Psalms 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God is eternal. Hell is eternal. Because God is eternal. And so something you have probably noticed in hearing and preaching, maybe of this text in or reading before, is every sense that this man has in life, in, we're going to look at quickly, he's got in hell. See, some people argue that Hades' judgment before the lake of fire is a disembodied spirit because our bodies are buried in the grave and they decompose and our soul, our spirit goes to be with the Lord or separated from God forever in eternal judgment. But And they say only his spirit suffers because his body is still in the grave waiting the final resurrection. Okay, but let's look at some points here. Remember I read Mark 9, 43 to 48, just at the first reading, two hands in hell, Hades. um, It says in hell, he lifted up his eyes. There's a sense of sight. Being in torments, he's got the sense of feeling. And he sees his eyes again, verse 24. He sees, there he lifted up his eyes and sees. He's got emotion because he cried and said to Abraham, in verse 24, and he's got the sense of speech at the end of 24 because he talks, cool my tongue. He's got the sense of taste because he says, I am tormented and, you know, I, I want Lazarus to come and give me water. There's a sense of feeling again and, um, and Abraham said, he's got, because Abraham said and so he's listening to Abraham, he's got the sense of hearing. So, all right. Let's look at this. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 
verse 1, for we know, it says, that if our earthly house, our body, of this tabernacle were dissolved, this is talking as believers, we have, and this is in the present tense, a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay. All right. It seems, we have a clear answer, like, it seems looking at these scriptures, we have some form, and I'm just going to say intermediately, like an intermediate body. I'm not saying it's like I don't understand, I don't have the answer to explain. What I'm just picturing here, and I'm going to awaiting the resurrection. So just hear me out to finish this. If we look at some other examples like Peter, James and John, who went up, we heard about the transfiguration this morning, they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And who did they see on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah and Moses. Okay, we know that Elijah went to heaven without dying and he had a recognisable body before. Um, But Moses died and God buried him on Mount Nebo, all right, before the Lord Jesus was resurrected. And he had a recognisable body on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's just a thought. Okay. Remember in this life, this man was very wealthy, all right? And we'll continue on with that thought in a minute. All right. The scene changes and he dies and goes to hell. What does he ask for, all right? Verse 24b. And he cried, well, I'll read the whole verse, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Does he ask for his servants? No. Does he ask for his mansion? No. Does he ask for a drop of water? What we realise is it's a whole lot less than a drop of water. Because if you put your finger in the water and you pull it back, it, there's, it's just the wetness of your finger. And... Um, it is a whole less than having a whole drop of water. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. There's a multi-millionaire in hell tonight at this very moment screaming for a very scary amount of water and he'll never get it. So in explaining the suffering of the rich man in hell, as we're doing right now, and as we see in the text, there is another aspect we could look at that happens to real people around us today. Now, just think of this, amputees. An amputee is someone who has lost a limb or a part thereof, like an arm or a hand or a foot. Now, I've read in a report where most people who have had a limb removed, amputated, report that it sometimes feels as if the amputated limb is still there. The thing that is most interesting is the limb or body part that they had amputated has an itch or a cramp soon after, usually, or even a couple of months after. And what they do, because this is a new thing, they reach over to scratch it, or relieve the cramp, whether it's in the calf muscle or on the leg or the arm. And you know what? It's just not there. Now, this can, I read, can be quite frustrating, especially for a new amputee. This itching or cramping sensation in the amputated limb is now has a medical term called phantom pain, and it's very real, and it happens to nearly most amputees. Phantom pain is the pain that feels like it's coming from a body part that's no longer there. Now, just trying to put all this together, 
Phantom pains, can you imagine dying and going to hell and to soothe your tormented body, but it's just not there? We don't know. I can't. It's just when people argue that, there's the fact that he's going through all those senses and that, as if, um, and they've done more study in it too, and they think it's something to do with the brain and the spinal cord telling your brain that those body parts are still there and your soul in heaven, God or in hell, uh, it's working in your soul that that pain is real and there and you're suffering as if you had your whole body, which we know is in the grave to be waiting for the resurrection. So, um, all right, hell number three. Uh, we've looked at hell as a place for sinners. Hell is a place of suffering. Hell is a place of sorrow. Well, look at the time. Okay, Matthew 13, uh, 41 and 42. Okay. The Son of Man shall... 13, 41, 42. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, quickly, some years ago, I went to visit a man named Wally Mott, who was in an aged care home, and he's gone to be with the Lord now. But something I just remember from walking down the hallways uh, from other rooms was hearing some of the weird screams and cries that came from them, from other people there. And when you're not used to these, you those things stick in your mind because um, you just... And so can you imagine going to a place where the screams of the damned descend from the depths of hell and they have no rest day or night, a place of sorrow? And so verse 25 of our text, um, and so thou art a place of... To- remember, and so we have Abraham said, son, remember. Remembrance must be a terrible thing in hell. How do you think it would be for this man to be in hell tonight and remember his palace, his mansion, to remember the upstanding position he had in his community, to remember his luxuries, his chariots and his servants? You know, that would add to his torments. And uh, Abraham called him son. That would have been like a lightning bolt, all right? Um, a shock because Abraham addressed him as son there as we see in verse 25 and that would have recalled to his mind every opportunity he had to receive the Messiah would it not can you imagine a person dying to, and going to hell and having sat under the gospel in a church like this or at a wedding or a funeral where the gospel was preached and in hell forever hearing that hymn just as I am without one plea that my, thy blood was shed for me and as thou bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And memory must be a terrible thing in hell. And you can imagine them screaming out, stop the music, stop, you know, the, just stop those thoughts that, of, where, of, of when he could have turned. And two, then there is sorrow in hell because of the influence we've had to, to, take, with, um, to take others with us. And so when I can think of... Romans fourteen seven, for none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Quote: The influence of every life affects others every day. 
We are either turning people towards God or influencing them the other way. A man may as well try to shake off his shadow as to free himself from this responsibility. And we see um, there with his brothers, he had five brothers, so there were six boys and he was maybe the oldest. And the influence that he realised that he had on them, that, hang on, my influence is going to bring them to this same place of torment. And so he tried to argue with Abraham about that and yet to no avail because there, there's no um, witnessing in hell or from without or, you know, there's a great gulf fix. No one can come or go. It's, it's finished. And so... Um, so when we think of that, uh, we, as parents, we have seen sometimes how our older children can set the example for other children and, you know, they can be motivated in a right way or a wrong way. And, uh, and so looks like um, as he died, his five younger brothers were going to die. That's what he was very concerned about. What a tragedy. He can, and this is more sorrow and guilt of a bad influence. Three, the sorrow in hell because it's a place of darkness quickly. Second Peter 2.17, it's the midst of darkness. Jude 13, it's the blackness of darkness forever. Matthew 8.12, it's out of darkness. Somebody says, how in the world can there be fire in hell and be a place of darkness? Well, some of the hottest flames from clean fuels like propane or alcohol, even here on this earth, burn mainly into a carbon dioxide and even a water vapour which are invisible. A very hot flame firefighters cannot see. They need thermometers to see where the heat is. And even they carry torches on their uniform. If you have a look at a picture, firefighters have torches and they go, it's dark in there. And so when just these are little arguments that a lot of people just to try and uh, diverge from the reality of hell. For hell is a place of separation. And um, this illustration, which I want to share, thank you for your patience, help to grasp a little better what forever and ever and eternity meant in my mortal mind. And what if Abraham had said, now, sir, with all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world, and we realise the significance of that, but say, if all the earth and the sea were sand also, we've got a massive pile of sand, all right, and every thousandth year, one thousandth year, a bird should come and take away one grain, it would be a long time before that heap would be removed. Grain of sand, one every. Yet, if after all that time the dam could come out of hell for five minutes, and in that five minutes you could have the biggest drink of water that you have ever had in your entire life, there would be hope, would there? Wouldn't there be for, for the damned? But Abraham didn't say that to him. The Lord Jesus didn't say that. What he made known was paraphrasing here, son, you are in hell and hell is a place of no repentance and no return. See, today is the day of salvation. While there is life, there is hope. There are three things the same about heaven and hell. There is no exit. The inhabitants will be there forever and ever. They last about the same amount of time, which we can't comprehend, that infinitable amount of eternity. So closing, three things which the unsaved man is separated. He's separated from the good things of life. No good things in hell. No beauty of colours anymore to see or fragrance of uh, flowers or fragrance and um, no picturesque mountains, no wonderful sounds of music or creation, no air conditioning, no water. All the good things in hell are absent. Two, separation from your loved ones. People have said, I'm going to be with all my mates in hell. They make a joke of it. There is no evidence of any acquaintance with those who are in hell. 
Dealing with your own torments continually will keep anyone from being able to have fellowship in that state of being. being. You are isolated. You are separated from God. God is going to have you separated from anyone else. And so um, in that thought, no um, separated from your loved ones. So no grandparent will be able to take their grandchildren on their lap. No mother will be able to clutch her little baby in her arms. And this to note, there are many in this church who have loved ones and we have prayer requests sometimes and we know their family members who are not saved yet or who are not even interested in the gospel and they have great concern for them and yet you praise the lord keep faithfully praying and we we need to be praying with you and uh, as a church and just thinking sandy mcginnis from mount morgan in queensland was saved at 100 years old it's found in the bushman's guide that testimony he had a godly wife whom he ill-treated that i believe faithfully prayed the lord would save him this drunkard most hopeless case of a man and he lived to a hundred she had long gone to be with the lord but in answer to prayer god had got a hold of old sandy's heart through his marvelous grace and patience and also george Mueller had an unsaved brother who he prayed for for we know over 50 years and then it was reported that after george Mueller had gone to be with the lord his brother became to christ while there's life there's hope so Separation from God, number three, Revelation 22.5 says, And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And so God is not there because in heaven we read there will be no need of the sun, moon or stars, as we just read. Jesus is the light of the, the new city, Jerusalem. New heaven and new earth. Can we understand why hell is out of darkness? Because the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not there. The worst thing about hell will be separation from God and his love forever and ever. And just concluding that, I really thank you for your patience. In this short but graphic story, it points out the terribleness of suffering in hell. The Lord Jesus teaches us the terrible end of those who live only for the gratification of their own sinful and selfish desires. And we have the Pharisees to thank for that and uh, in, in him using that because that's how they were living and that's how they were condemned. And it has been said, earth is our probation, like a trial period for the next life. The teaching of scriptures show us the life we live on earth determines our eternal status. So let's remember the contrast. Heaven or hell, there's only two places. The Lord Jesus Christ or the devil, there is only one saviour. Repent now and believe. And the cross is where Jesus suffered and died and that's where he paid the penalty of all our wicked works before we were saved. And we don't have to give an account and stand there before God at the great white throne judgment because that works, the wicked works in those books have been dealt with at the cross. And so praise the Lord for Hebrews 9.27. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Father, we thank you for this word, um, this very graphic, detailed description of the reality of the suffering of eternal punishment. We thank you that we can believe it to be real. Um, it is, it, it, Lord, it, it is as literal as we stand here, Lord. And there are people there now screaming in torment and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And may their cries stir our hearts, we pray, as we seek to determine not to want to let anyone else go there, Lord. That is our obedience to you in the Great Commission, to teach people how to turn from their sin and wicked ways, how to be um, 
Lord, freed from this condemnation. Lord, we pray and thank you now as we sing just as I am. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name.